Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, where you can listen to conversations that are important to Park Avenue Synagogue, conversations that are important to the American Jewish community, as well as the American and international community as a whole. And you can listen to us at one and a half speed, and then it's half, well, not half the time, but um, significantly less time. But I urge you to listen carefully to today's conversation because we have a special guest. Sometimes we have guests who are actually members of Park Avenue Synagogue. Um, uh, I don't believe Rabbi Gortz has ever been a member of Park Avenue Synagogue, but he has um, spent his uh, years, many of them here in Manhattan, uh, and he is a dear friend and an honored colleague and a leader of the American Jewish community with a brand new book out, um, which is called To Build a Brave Space, the making of a spiritual first responder. Uh, Now, many of you might have heard of Rabbi Gortz, who uh, began his tenure as senior rabbi of congregation in B'nai Jeshurun in July of 2006. But previous to that, he was a senior associate rabbi of congregation Rodef Shalom in a place far, far away called the Upper West Side. Um, He earned his master's in Hebrew literature from Hebrew Union College, uh, in 1996 and was ordained by HUCJIR in 1997. Uh, Rabbi Gortz has, was a founding executive committee member of the Newark Coalition for Hope and Peace, an interfaith organization of Jews, Christians, and Muslims that was committed to ending gang violence in Newark from 2007 to 2017. Uh, he is a regular contributor to numerous professional publications. He's a fellow at the National Think Tank, CLAL. He's appeared as a commentator on religion on MSNBC's Morning Joe and CNN's State of the Union um, and all sorts of cool things, not all of which I'm going to list, but I do want to say that he is a dear friend and it is great that this publication, uh, Rabbi Gortz, to build a brave space, the making of a spiritual first responder that has just come out. Um, has given us a reason to reconnect. Rabbi Gortz, welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. Rabbi Kosgrove, thank you for having me. And uh, especially since we're taping this while I'm in Jerusalem on sabbatical first semester, so to be in a place mm-hmm. that's so dear to us and our families means even more. So thank you very much. Well, it is it is great to, to be here. I, I have to say it is a tinge of jealousy that you are not only in Jerusalem, but on sabbatical. But as they say, please God by me soon. So yes. <laughs> it's great to see. And, and I do want to tie into it because you and I knew each other back before we were Rabbi Gortz and Rabbi Cosgrove when it was just Matt and Elliot talking. And we're going to come back to that. But I want to begin with the book because it's a huge thing. I can't believe as a busy congregational rabbi of a huge uh, New Jersey synagogue, um, you had time to write this book. 
So I want to begin with just maybe you could tell me and our listeners a little bit about the book, how it came to be, um, and, and, and the journey uh, of, of, of what the reader can expect with To Build a Brave Space. Sure. I uh, was brought up in a home uh, probably similar to many people who are listening. A lot of us Jews in the 70s were uh, left politically uh, and at the same time avidly Zionist. And uh, in my house, politics and religion became conflated. But what did I know? I was a kid. So my mother would say things like, you'll never, ever fight a war in Vietnam. She was you know, just such a uh, anti-war uh, person, but if you're ever going to fight, you're going to fight in Eretz Yisrael. And I'm six or I'm seven years old and I'm thinking, mom, I don't want to fight anywhere. And uh, so those things became conflated, very passionate uh, as a kid about uh, world issues, believe it or not, uh, sports, of course, food and politics and all those things and Judaism, of course, and all those things came together. <clears throat> but the first time it really resonated was uh, Harold Saperstein, uh, who was an extraordinary reform rabbi, extraordinary rabbi generally. Uh, his son, David Saperstein, ran the Religious Action Center. Anyway, 72 is one of my first memories where the 11 Israelis are killed in Munich. And he gets up, and I don't remember the words of his sermon word by word, but I remember him saying, I'm going to fast 11 days in a row for every Israeli killed. I remember pulling in my father's arms saying, how is it possible and he shushed me. We talked about it at home later. And I remember then the confluence of someone for the religion giving up something they loved for something that was incredibly important to them and resonant for them. And for me, food and sports and Judaism were the, probably the main parts of my life. And he was giving up one for the other. And that sort of shot me off on a trajectory. But the problem is, is that I was always, again, conflating religion and uh uh, religion and, and ethics and religion and politics. And uh, it was in a college course. I was sitting in a political science class and I was already good at using words and I was a decent debater. And I was kicking the living daylights out of a Reaganite in my class. And I was just, you know, I had every single word down and the professor gets up, he let the argument go for a while. And he said, you know, my young students, uh, some of you may want to think about understanding your substance as well as you speak forth in debate in class. And I started walking out of class and I said, oh, my God, he's talking about me. And uh, that I was really good with the words, but I wasn't doing my research. Fast forward that to getting me to this New Jersey congregation, living and coming from this bubble of the Upper West Side, where Jerry Nadler was winning every election, 80 to 20. And I started to... Uh, meet congregants who had very different political uh, viewpoints than I did. And some of them who started to wonder if I would still pastor to them, given their political affiliations. And that's made me stop. It made me realize, wait a minute, I better uh, sort of have really long and good conversations with these folks. Uh, and I'll fast forward a little bit quicker and we could dig in deeper. Uh, the world became incredibly polarized in ways that you and I didn't grow up with. Uh, just 10, 15 years ago, it probably started in the Gingrich days, the Gingrich Clinton days, but really came to a crescendo, of course, with the election of 2016. And I was depressed. I was depressed because any conversation that I used to have, either by way of sport or by way of just, you know, good old dialectic, you couldn't have anymore. And I was sitting in an airport 
And uh, someone sent me an article and said, you should read this. And it says, perhaps the exhausted majority want to think about becoming part of a radical center. And I go on to read the article and read about Josh Geidheimer, who starts the Problem Solvers Caucus in Congress and certain political commentators who were coming together, but there was no, there were no religious figures there. And what I started to experience was our colleagues were just as echo chamber uh, centered as the news media was. So you got people up speaking and railing on the left and the same thing on the right. But where are the people who are going to stand in the center, not to be wishy-washy, but to say that dialogue has to be equally important to the things we believe on either side of the political spectrum. And thus, I decided to do something crazy, like write about it. Right. Amazing, amazing. So it's part sort of a a narrative, and and I had the pleasure of of diving into the book in anticipation of of today, of of the making of your religious identity, your leadership identity. Uh, But it also sort of, you know, for me, reading your book, um, Matt, was very much reading certain chapters of my own life, especially these last few years, because this question of the combination of the 2016 um, and the 2000, and, and then of course, COVID and Black Lives Matter and the, the polarized discourse um, and, and, and back to the sort of uh, the, the subtitle of your book, The Making of a Spiritual First Responder of what does it actually mean to be a, a, a community leader in a time, not just of such crisis, but of such vitriol and polarization across the country and within our community. Um, and I'm, I'm just thinking back to my own rabbinic training, right? I don't know if when I was, you know, you were trained at HUC, I was trained at JTS. I don't know if we thought about it that back then in the same way, like we might've talked about debates of, you know, how commanding meets what were or weren't, or whether we would do interfaith marriages or not, or, you know, there were sort of these, you know, issues of feminism. I'm trying to think of like the years back in the stone age when you and I were in school, but. I don't think anything has prepared me for certainly these last, what is it, five years of our career, eight years of our career. And then on top of that, um, the crisis of, of leading a communities in pain during, uh, during COVID and today. You know, I think the best uh, way to, 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 to uh, measure it is, I know JTS, same thing in HUC, we all gave senior sermons. There was not one senior sermon in my five years given about polarity, about political discourse. And I want to say as something self-critical, you could be critical of your own movement, I'll be of mine, that they didn't prepare us for it because I think they didn't think it was going to be an issue. But also, even in rabbinic school, there was a bubble where all of us sat left of center. It wasn't radically left of center, but all of us sat left of center and I believe that if there were those rabbinic students who were right of center, they kept their mouths shut. And I'm thinking they did that because the power structure around them subscribed to a certain political philosophy. I'll go further uh, with as much as I am incredibly close to my classmate. And I know you know him well, also Jonah Pesner. And I think he's changed the way the rack is directed. But I do believe that my right wing congregants um, had a point when they felt like sometimes the rack acted like the RAC is the, the reform movement, uh, political action. Uh, Religious action, yeah. I'm just, thank you for defining that. But oftentimes people would say they're just a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party. 
And I used to poo-poo that. And I don't believe they were, but I see why they were perceived as such because we all we all lived in that bubble. So no, we were not prepared for this. By the way, I don't know about you. I mean, I wasn't prepared for fundraising. I wasn't prepared for budget. These are all things that thank God I was in the business world for a few years. So I got there and I was able to handle myself. But 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 then on top of all of that, to become healthcare workers during the pandemic, um, one other thing I want to say, I think if I remember correctly, you were already in Chicago, uh, September 11th, 2001, correct? Correct, correct, correct. I was at Road of Shalom and the word first responder came from my publisher because that day when I got to synagogue and my senior rabbi, Robert Levine, from whom I learned so much, basically took out, you know, the, there were no, the internet was not the same. And we looked up every member that worked at the World Trade Center. We divided them up and he said, okay, now just go. Just like an EMT would, just like, you know, anyone in a, in a first responder role. And we went from home to home to home, knocking on doors and seeing who lost and who didn't. Because, again, there was no Facebook to tell us that. Yeah. I remember walking around saying this is the closest that I could ever feel to being a first responder. And that crisis helped set me up to understand how to deal with the financial crisis of 08, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, covid all of these things where that became, unfortunately, a model. And I don't think you and I were prepared for that either, because what kind of crises did our, you know, our predecessors have in the same way? Right. And in the various chapters of your book, you, you, you cover, you know, being a rabbi in New York with mass grief, as not to mention personal grief, of course, uh, in 9-11. And then uh, other, I think the first one of the chapters is on um, the whole question and the debate on officiating at intermarriages and gay weddings, which I have, I, I love Rabbi Bob. Uh, he gave me my first job teaching in his Hebrew school when I was in uh, rabbinical school. But it's also, it's, uh, you know, we learn in those moments when we're not actually the ones, you know, at the stick, but we're learning what it is to keep a community together in a moment of crisis. It sounds like Rodef Shalom was, was critical in your you know, leadership uh, development. Is that right? I would say that Road of Shalom, Park Avenue, Central Synagogue, I can go on, you know, the other names uh, are fit in the following category. My mother said to me, son, you're being raised in the Harvard of synagogues. And if you're able to succeed there as an associate, you'll go any place you want. And when I got up in New Jersey, it's not as big as Rotor Shalom B'nai Jeshurun, but it's, it's the biggest one there. And 3,000 people were able to seat on my holidays. And I looked out, and the one thing I knew is I wasn't scared, not because I wasn't humble, but because I had done it there. And so, yes, the training ground, but not just the place and the sophistication that comes with the Upper Western East Side, but also with a mentor who really taught me how to be who I am today. He, he took clay and molded me just in extraordinary ways. I know you're a mentor because I've worked with him recently and I know you got the same training. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to circle back to that because uh, I want to talk about the training and mentoring of, of the next generation. Cause you and I, Matt are no longer the kids in the room, but the uh, so, so what have you discovered? Um, you know, the, the later chapters of the book, you know, with political divides, um, this, this question of whether, the reform movement, whether Judaism is merely an arm of, I mean, you have a political, uh, the, the New Jersey's, your community is not the Upper West Side. Um, and, uh, and the, you know, the, you have people on this, uh, across the spectrum of 
political beliefs. Um, we're talking about the Trump presidency, um, the Trump-Biden election, and now the Biden presidency. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm a little bit in therapy, but how do you keep a, how do you uh, shepherd um, a politically diverse community successfully? When you, when you have that range of views, you want to speak to the issues of the day, you want to try to do your best to represent the tradition, because we're not op-ed writers, we're rabbis, but at the same, and we want to push people beyond their, I mean, how, how is, there, is there a rule book here or is it a sense of smell, Matt? Well, one of the things um, I never told you that that uh, helped inspire me was the article you wrote after you came back from the dedication of the embassy in Jerusalem. And, uh, and you said that there were very few people, and I'm going to paraphrase because I know you didn't put it this way, but that looked like you. And I don't, you didn't actually mean look like Elia Koskov, but look like a reformer, conservative, or non-Orthodox rabbi. And that if we were ever going to find a way forward, if I remember correctly, we're going to have to find a way to not make Israel this uh, uh, this bait and switch or this this item by which we dupe the other into following a certain political party. And I was so behind what you wrote in that. And uh, so is there a philosophy or is there smell? I, I think part of what we do is by instinct. But I also believe that with the, first, the, the next thing I did was that same year when I quoted your sermon is I uh, stopped being a Democrat in name and became an independent and said to my congregation that I'm switching my affiliation so that you will always know me as an honest broker. And I am going to, it doesn't mean I'm going to, because how can we always know if our truth is the truth, but I'm going to do everything I can to be an umpire, to call balls and strikes consistently. And the deal I'm making with you is that you have to do the same thing. And uh, I don't mean necessarily become independent, although many did, including a very right-wing president of mine who the next day said, I'm in. And, um, and that if we could become honest brokers and really listen to each other and not talk about the politics, but talk about the values that underpin the politics, that we'd probably have a lot more to agree with than not, especially, by the way, in the Northeast. I mean, if we're fighting here in the Northeast, imagine what happens when you go further west and you get to the middle of the country. And I also believe that we became a caricature of ourselves, that you know, I have people who work for me who would use all kinds of elitist, you know, uh, as, as we be critiqued by the right, elitist language that didn't have any meaning underneath it. And I remember saying to one of my assistant rabbis, do you know you sound exactly the way the person from Iowa describes us as, and you know, you can't be up in an ivory tower. We have to be able to listen to each other. And you know, the Talmud teaches that when you get really angry by some by what someone else says, it's generally because their truth is truth, and it hurts us because part of what they're saying is actually true, and um, and that means we have to be able to uh, listen carefully, not just ready to respond with our rebuttal but to listen with the ability to actually learn that there may be something we could understand from the other side. I want to tell you one quick story from the book that really helped me. During my fellowship at Klal, we were told that we had to, Talmud also teaches, you can't just put your, uh, your feet in the shoes of another person that we, you know, becomes cliche, but you have to believe it enough so that you can teach the other point of view. 
And so they gave us gun violence and I had to be pro-gun. And, you know, I grew up in Manhattan. The last thing any kid in Manhattan is, is pro-gun because we see dangers around us. So I was on the internet and I was in the Talmud and I was coming up with a great case study and a great debate points for why we should be pro-gun. And a much younger rabbi, a conservative rabbi said to me, I don't think you're really taking this seriously. I'm thinking, who the hell do you think you are, kid? <laughs> and he said, oh, something like, with all due respect, Matt, I just feel like you're doing this for the exercise. What would actually make you teach from the other side? And he was so sweet, actually, in the way he said it. And then suddenly it occurred to me, back to Brooklyn, my dad lived down there. I'm 16, my sister's 12. We get jumped from behind by three guys, two guys. My father, this 58-year-old English professor, not a big, you know, brawny guy. Yeah. It sees my sees his kids get attacked, goes right into it with this guy rolling around the ground with this guy. He doesn't expect it from this middle-aged man. And I said, Pop, pop, he has a knife up to Rifka's neck. And he doesn't hear me. And the man who's rolling around with him says, Cut her, cut her now. And my sister says, I could see it right now. Please don't kill me. And I'm screaming, Pop, he has a knife. And he looks up, he says, He has a knife. And he lets go. The guy pulls his whole pocket out of his pants, the wallet with the pocket. And there's about 10 seconds, which feels like three hours where the knife is still there, where I'm thinking, that's it. He's going to cut her throat. And I realized all these years later, had I had a gun and, you know, accessible to me, I would have shot the guy and never, ever regretted it to this day. And now, do I feel that way here talking to you intellectually and academically? No. But in that moment to have saved my sister's life, I absolutely would have done it. And then I woke up. I was on the Morning Joe set and it was right after Newtown. And I moved in that moment because of something Scarborough said and that experience that I had back then that I was no longer anti-Second Amendment, but I was pro-gun safety. So we could find a way to talk to people about something that I was adamantly against. I'm still adamantly against guns. But I realized that other people don't feel the same way that I do. And can we find a way not to have what happened this summer at North Shore um, and still be able to, again, have these conversations? And I believe there's room to do that. Now, is there someone on the other side willing to understand why I'm scared of guns? I hope so. But I do believe almost with every issue, I think abortion would probably be the hardest. But I believe immigration and guns and the rest of it, we can actually have conversations that start with values and then end with the politics instead of starting the other way around. Well, um, extraordinary. And I think that to, to see the other side, to have that empathy for not just those we agree with, disagree with, but thank you. And what a moving story um, that we can all take something with us. Um, Matt, you, you've also uh, thinking about creating relationships and empathy and otherwise uh, also insisted in your leadership to create interfaith, multi-faith relationships. That's been a big part of your rabbinate, which I, I admire you for, and uh, um, you, you've done great things. Um, Matt, wh where, where does the importance of creating dialogue with Muslim communities, uh, Christian communities, um, how does that figure into your leadership of your community? The Monday after Pittsburgh, and all of us were, and I know, I know Debbie, your, your wife is from that community, so I'm sure it was particularly resonant yeah. in such a difficult way for you guys. I'm guessing, but, uh, but I must Yeah, yeah, no, we went, we went uh, right then that week. 
Was that her shul growing up, Tree of Life? Uh, no, but many B'nai Mitzvah. There are two big conservative uh, Squirrel Hill shuls, Beth Shalom and Tree of Life. They're like three blocks away from each other. And uh, yeah, so. So you remember what it was like for us, not only our personal pain, but having to lead community yet through another crisis of something that didn't seem fathomable, you know, a year before that, two days before that. And um, so I did TV and I did stuff with our kids, kids first, TV second, um, writing, communication, services, communal services. And I said to my assistant, I, I need I need some time, downtime. I need to think. I need to write, prepare the Devar Torah for the coming Shabbat. And I said, no calls, no nothing. And uh, she comes and she says, you have a phone call. And I said, Penny, I said no more phone calls. I, I need time to think. And she said, it, it's Cardinal. It's the Cardinal on the phone. And uh, not your Cardinal, my Cardinal. You, you have Cardinal right. and we have uh, Tobin, who's an extraordinary man. He was just appointed by Francis. And uh, so when the Cardinal calls, you, you stop and you make the call like a nice Jewish boy. Right. And yeah, yeah. so I picked up the phone and he called to offer condolences. And of course, anyone could have. But it was because of the fact that we worked together, he and Episcopal bishops and a lot of the imams in the state. We worked together all the time. So when these things happen, they're not fake. The condolences, the love, the support the really hard work that you have to do. So the reason I came to it, it's funny, when I was an associate rabbi, you get assigned portfolios and it was not my portfolio. So I did almost no interfaith work in Manhattan, not because I didn't want to. Again, 1900 families, you get assigned to do what you yeah. do. Out here, it became utterly important. Um, so pulpit exchanges, you talked about the Newark gang violence. Uh, Cory Booker was really supportive of us doing all of that work. And uh, we had certain rules. Uh, at first, you don't talk about Israel and Palestinians, the Israel, Israelis and Palestinians. You make sure that everything is kosher and halal. And, uh, and you find all the places where you agree, which, of course, is being anti-violence. And, uh, and then later on, the harder issues were able to come up, including a trip here with Christians and Muslims and, and, uh, and Jews and really, really horrible and hard discussions but always with the underpinning of love. So uh, it's, they. by the way, I'll just end with this part. Uh, my youngest daughter, Sadie, who's now almost 14, when we named her at the shul about a year and a half, two years after we got there, Robert Levine came out and, and named her. But uh, my very dear friend, Imam Dean Sharif, also gave her um, a naming from the Muslim tradition. And... Uh, and he he called her Sadia instead of Sadie because that's what they would call her. And and uh, but I, I have the chills even telling you the story. I, I and and he he came to her bat mitzvah and I and I said you know no matter what we've gone through we've blessed each other's children, so that counts for everything. So yes, it's been a huge part, but not because I want to do it because you're supposed to do it, but because they've become colleagues, dear friends. And I'll even say this: there are rabbis we can't always go to because you don't want to share some of the stuff. By way of, you know, uh, surprise, surprise to your congregants. We are competitive people, just like everyone else is. But I could go to the bishop and the imam and tell them anything. And they give me lots of great advice that has that will have no bearing on my career yeah. by way of me saying things that make me too vulnerable. Yeah. You know, I remember the uh, there's a big mosque on 96 uh, right by me. 
and I was having lunch and in another is a different imam, but uh, back in the day, and I was boning up on my Quran and making sure I knew where we were in the Muslim calendar. And I had all my talking points about Israel and this, and we found a place where he felt comfortable eating and I felt comfortable eating. And we sit down and he's like, how much of your day do you spend fundraising? <laughs> and then he was like, do you have any board members who are problematic for you? And we had like a fabulous, and we developed a, a wonderful warm friendship um, where, you know, and it was just like, we were playing from a different, you know, faith tradition, but as leaders of two Upper East Side congregations, like the language was all the same. And um, we realized that, you know, and, and that's actually where the friendship, uh, you know, began. So we were, um, so I hear what you're saying. Um, let me ask, because um, we're, we're winding down, but I, I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this, um, because we've been talking about the toll it takes to be, um, a rabbi during these times, all the more so a congregational rabbi. And I'm, uh, you know, sitting here in dialogue with you, Rabbi Matthew Gewertz, uh, one of the leading lights of the reform movement and the American rabbinate. And, and I'm just thinking about the pipeline, right? About are there future um, Matt Gewertzes? Are there, you know, you had this experience and you describe it beautifully in your book to build a brave space. Of, of your religious formation, your leadership formation, and I'm just, and, and the influence uh, Rabbi Saperstein of Blessed Memory had on you. And I'm just thinking, like, ha, is it about tapping the young rabbi, the young, the young Matthews on the shoulder? Is it about Jewish summer camp? Is it about um, sort of youth leadership programs when kids are in college? I mean, if you had a, a million dollars and and you were sort of tasked with, you know, uh, making the pipeline flush with future leadership. Um, how, how would you go about thinking about the issue? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the million dollar question for people like us now. Uh, I, I, yes, I agree with all the things you said. Yes, still camp and yes, still Israel. And yes, still the personal tapping on the shoulders and the mentoring that we do. I think it's invaluable. But you know, when you only have 29% of the American Jewish community that are affiliated with synagogues, you have much less of a pool from which to draw. And uh, so I, I go back to two things. One is that um, our tradition is not wrong. I still think it's one of the wisest messages, you know, writ large that, and I, by the way, not, not better than Christianity or better than Islam, it's just ours. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful truth that can really guide us. But the question is, are we delivering it in ways that are reaching beyond that 29%? And what does that mean? I believe that although we didn't call it this when we were in our 20s, and we might have because we were geeks who went to rabbinic school, but I do believe that kids are searching for meaning and purpose and relevance. And I do believe that so unfortunately and so scary are kids more anxious and more depressed than they've ever been. And the question mm -hmm. is, can we deliver this age-old message in a way that gives them hope and gives them direction in a life that can be replete with meaning? And I believe that if we touch them with that meaning and purpose, some of them, like you and I, were, will want to get up and say, I want to give that meaning and purpose to others. But it's also going to have to come in an agile, uh, flexible format where they, I don't know, I'm sure you felt the same way. I felt like at HUC, 
They told us how it was going to be, when it was going to be, where it was going to be, how much it was going to be. And the truth is, is that um, we're living in a Twitter universe where our attention spans are shorter. And I'm not saying less substance and less depth. I think we need a lot of depth, but we have to be creative about how we um, uh, fashion those programs. And if we just, and you you and I are, are, are part of a group of rabbis that I'm going to say something that's a little bit um, uh, incendiary. But I would say you and I may be the rules, not just you and I, but others and colleagues like us are the rules that prove the exception as opposed to the opposite, meaning that we're in thriving, successful congregations through which God willing, if we want to, we both can finish our careers at and continue to work very hard, which I know you do and, and you know that I do. But if we don't figure a way to disruptively innovate within the legacy institutions that we uh, run then we are nothing less or more than complicit. We're complicit in bringing the Jewish community down. So we need to figure out how to change our places, be open to getting out of our silos, uh, learn something from the places that scare us a little bit, like the Romamus and the kitchen in, in, in Northern California and, and, and Mishkan, Chicago, and these places that are really our Ubers and our Netflix and our block, you know, places that have all just and to learn very quickly from them. And I do believe that that will deliver relevance and meaning and purpose to our younger people, which will guide them to saying, hey, I want to do what they do, but not because we're in the same old model. And you know what? You and I didn't look like the rabbis we were scared of becoming. Like we came, we're runners, we're, we're basketball players, we're, you know, we love sports. So after all, I understand from doing a conversion, I did a big team, that you have a rabbi whose husband's the assistant general manager of the Mets. Like, whoever thought a rabbi would be married to someone like that, but that's not enough to be hip and cool. We're going to have to deliver something much deeper. And uh, I'm not going to make believe and say, I don't worry. I really worry a lot. And I know you do from reading your stuff. But I believe that being worried and being paralyzed is going to do us no good. We have to take really uh, risky chances. And I think on the other side of that is going to be light and hope. I really believe that. Amen. Amen. Well, the nice thing about this podcast, um, Matt, is that we're going to work together on it. Because I think uh, what you just said, that the legacy institutions, the steamships have to think creatively with the startups, even if that makes us feel a little uncomfortable, that entrepreneurship, um, that sense of can do, uh, being leading not with a why, but the why not. Um, I know that's how you think. Um, I hope you know that's how I think. And um, and I know we're going to work together on that. Um, Rabbi Gortz, Rabbi Matthew Gortz, I want to wish you mazel tov on your new publication, fabulous new book, To Build a Brave Space. The Making of a Spiritual First Responder. And um, it's been great to be in dialogue with you. I can't wait to see you again soon. I Take look forward to it all sudden. And thank you to your community. I look forward to being with you guys soon as well. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah,